This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. For almost 40 years, Chris Ketz has been a familiar face on TV right here in Kansas City. In fact, for all of those years, he's been with Channel 9. There was a couple of times during Ketz's career where he went, whoa, I don't know what's going on here. I need to get out of this situation. We'll discuss those. Plus, when a news person actually becomes the news. It's something you're not supposed to do. But there was one fateful night where Chris Ketz became the story. Well, how about that? 37 years, my friend, at Channel 9 just passed on July 4th. And as we sit here in 2020, did you ever think you'd be anchoring news at a time where we have race riots? We have uh, weather issues going on right now. We have uh, economy issues. We have virus issues. Like, it's all converging into one, huh? I I never, I, I wouldn't, when I walked into KNBC on the 4th of July, 1983, I wouldn't have given myself much of a chance to last two years much less 37. No. Why Why wouldn't you have given yourself an opportunity to last that long? Oh, because I was, Bob, I was, um, I, I was a kid in his early 20s with hardly any experience in the business at all, uh, moving from market what was then, I don't know, 75 or 80 in the Quad Cities to market what was, I think, at the time, 29 in Kansas City. That kind of a market jump was not something that was typical of the time. It, it, it's much more today, but not in 1983. And when I walked into that newsroom for the first time, I, I will always give myself credit for this. I had at least a partial sense of what I didn't know about where I was and what the, the job I was hired for. There was so much about reporting that coming from the Quad Cities to a big market like Kansas City, I didn't know. Um, and so I walk into this newsroom and it didn't take me long to figure out that I was in way, way, way over my head. But I will give myself credit for this. I was at least smart enough at that time to realize that I was in a room with some awfully talented people. And if I just kept my mouth shut, and watched how they worked, I might learn something. Uh, I was in a newsroom to my left was Michael Mahoney, who for my money, he's as good as it gets. Uh, to my right was the late great Edward Lewis. Two seats down to the left next to Mahoney was Bob Worley. And about three or four months later, Bev Chapman walks in, who has been retired from KNBC for many years now, but um, to 
for my money, again, one of the best ever. I, I've said for years, if, if, I could, if I could be half as good a writer as Bev Chapman, I would have died and I'll have died and gone to heaven. It, it's just, she's just that good. So I'm in a room with some seasoned professionals who know what they're doing and who are really good at what they do. Why am I here? <laughs> this makes no sense at all. So, but 37 years later, I, I, if nothing else you can say, he hasn't had trouble keeping a job, right? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. So af after that 37 years, or after that first day, I should say, what, was that the first day you went to the Quaff, or did that come after day two? Or when, when, when did you start, you know, attending what was the real place where business got done for Channel 9? Yeah, Bob Pesco's done his homework. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, it was Mahoney who, um, uh, who introduced me to the Quaff. And, of course, Michael had been here a few years and was – I think in 1983, he was a hard news reporter, but he came here as a features guy and, and obviously had a head start on Kansas City and was able to introduce me to some of the more popular establishments uh, downtown at the time. And certainly the Quaff was uh, at the top of the list. So uh, it, it didn't take long for me to realize where the Quaff was and its significance uh, in downtown. And of course, it's, it's legendary. Uh, 1010 Broadway. Um, say hi to the Benino family when you walk in because they're 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 just terrific. Well, I, I think as a journalist, you have to you know get your sources from everywhere. I know in sports, man, we hear from a lot of people: the real estate agent, the guy at the airport, you know, people like that, the cab driver and whatnot. But I can always say, like, the bartender knows what's going on in a town. Like, those guys know everything. And a friend of mine's in city government, not in this area, and he says to me, he goes, the more that I live here, the more I realize the bartenders and the waiters, those are the ones who know everything that's going on in town. And the Quaff then and now was a place that drew people from all walks of society. You could be a, a big-time development lawyer working on some big real estate deal downtown, chances are you are going to be at the Quaff. Uh, you could be a major market legendary television anchor like uh, Larry Moore, for instance. Not unusual to see Larry uh, at, at the Quaff um, after a broadcast. It was certainly a place to hang out for us, uh, for someone like myself who worked many years on the night side. Uh, that was a place that we, uh, would go to to unwind. Part of it was, it was close. Don't forget, we were in the Lyric Theater for so many years at 11th and Central. And so you walk out the front door and you turn right a couple of steps and through the alley and, and, and there you are. Um, but it, it just, it's, it's such a wonderful place and I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you brought it up because it gives me a chance to, to brag about them a little bit and, and tell them how much uh, they mean to, to so many people, uh, especially at Channel 9. Because for, for many, many years, before we moved out to the uh, Far East Side, there was a running joke that, that, that the Quaff was kind of Channel 9 West. <laughs> and and, and so for so many years, it, it certainly was. Well, it, it, it's interesting, though, because when, when I was in college and, and we took a, uh, I think it was either journalism law or journalism history, whatever it was, Tom Volick was the teacher. And I remember him telling us, and I'll always remember this, booze and journalism, booze and journalism. Bars were the first form of journalism in this country. Everybody gathered, everybody talked about the, you know, the stories of the day and everything that was going on. He goes, and that's still true to this day. And that was in the 1990s. And, you know, here, here you are, and everybody knows Channel 9, how legendary that place was. How many story I 
ideas, things did you get by sitting around that place? I, I, I lost count 30 years ago. Um, again, a function of the fact that so many people from so many walks of life in Kansas City would spend some of their downtime in there. And lawyers, uh, you name it, business executives, uh, again, you name it. There were all kinds of people there and they all had stories to tell. And more times than not, they were really good stories to tell. And yeah, I sure, I, I picked up a ton of leads from there. Um, I, when we, uh, as a television station, when we moved out east, um, there are many of us who have been around for a long time. Michael may be more the exception than the rule, but there are some of us who have um, been at KNBC for a long time who uh, probably have lost a little track with the quad just because we're we're so far removed from it now geographically and um, there really aren't a lot of places to hang out where we are at, four, at 435 and 63rd uh, there aren't there, there isn't a quaff across the street to go to to hang out to unwind from uh, from, from a day's work and um, and that, and that and that's a regret of mine um, quite frankly I uh, because um, it is it is such a terrific place and, and the people who run it are wonderful and and it's one of the things that I miss about being downtown. Um, I know that when we were looking to build a new building, we tried really hard for a site downtown and for a variety of reasons, it just didn't work. Not to say that where we are right now isn't terrific, it is. Um, it's, it's much easier to get to from where I live now and, than, than our studio downtown, but, uh, but I do miss downtown. I, I, I miss it a lot. Um, when we made the move, uh, out east, uh, there were a lot of things in the pipeline, but they hadn't quite happened yet. And when we moved, you, you had a feeling that we might find ourselves saying years later, "Boy, I wish we were we were still downtown because because um, it's really a happening place." So you said when we started, you didn't think you'd last all of two years. Here it is, thirty-seven years. You know what? What about Kansas City kept you here thirty-five years plus longer than you ever thought you'd be here? Oh. I think my father was somebody who um, was an anchor up in the Quad Cities for 35 years before he passed away in 1999, and he had opportunities to move. Um, part of it was that he had three young sons, and I think the idea of, of picking up and moving was not something that was terribly appealing to him, the hassle of moving and reestablishing roots and that sort of thing. I also think, too, that my dad was somebody who had a pretty good sense he liked where he was. He knew it was a really good place to raise a family. And why give that up? Why take a chance on something that is unknown? I'm probably a little bit like that. The thought of moving has never been terribly appealing to me. And the opportunities to go other places that have come, I just never thought the opportunities were appealing, but I just never thought that they were long-term better than where I was. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I, I just never thought that that the upside was so much that I wanted to take a chance on that. And so I've had it pretty good here at KNBC for an awfully long time. And I'm still one of those people who it's still a lot of fun to go to work. And I say that after being there 37 years and in daily journalism now pushing 42. Not a lot of people can say that. And I know I'm I'm incredibly lucky to be able to do so. 
Um, so I, I guess part of it is for me to answer your question. I don't like moving. I like where I'm at. This has been a wonderful place to raise a family, as we are still doing. Why give that up? Is there one that you look at and you go, man, I wish I would have given that one an opportunity maybe? Do you have like a regret of a job? Or Because I think when we're all in this business, you know, you mentioned two years here. I never thought I'd be back in Kansas City, let alone back for a decade. You always thought you'd move on in someplace else. There's just something about this town that, that, that keeps you here, that makes you want to be here. Is there any one offer where you look at and you go, man, I wish I would have taken a chance on that? Um, I was in some very, very preliminary discussions with CNN uh, before the first Gulf War. And it was an opening in their Chicago bureau. And as it turns out, the, the correspondent who, who ended up taking that job was stationed in the Middle East for some time, right as the first Gulf War was breaking out. There was a little bit of, well, maybe I shouldn't have been so quick to say thanks, but no thanks. Mm -hmm. Just to be on the, um, just to be in the front row of such an historic moment in time. That's probably the, if there's a regret, and I'm not even sure I'd call it a regret, but that was probably one opportunity where I second-guessed myself maybe a little bit, but it didn't last very long. You, you mentioned historic moments in time. We're living through, obviously, those historic moments in time. And, and we're looking at, you know, a lot of, you know, racial confrontation going on in this country right now. You were in L.A. in 92 when the Rodney King verdict happened. You were there when the riots were going on. First part of that question is, why were you there at that point in time? And the second part of that question is, what was that like compared to where we are today? April 92, uh, April 29th, 1992, I know the date because it's my birthday. Um, we were flying out to Los Angeles to cover a different story. For those who have been around here long enough, they might remember that in the early 90s, Kansas City was in the running for a final assembly plant for what was then Douglas Aircraft. Douglas Aircraft wanted to build a, a big jumbo jet and they had plans on the table and they were ready to go and they were looking for a place to build it. And Kansas City was in the running for that plant. It would have meant thousands of high paying jobs. And what we thought was maybe a level of economic stability. Of course, we, now that we know what we know years later, that, that probably wouldn't have, have been the case, but we didn't know that at the time. But going out to Los Angeles at that time, it was going to be our only opportunity to talk to the people, to the decision makers, to ask them questions about what they thought about the Kansas City bid. And there was, um, so they, they scheduled this meeting. And so um, as, as I'm getting on the plane and a little bit about technology in, in local television news in 1992, we all had satellite capability. And KNBC belonged to this satellite cooperative of stations all over the country called CONUS. And we all had these big, extremely expensive, cumbersome satellite trucks that you could drive to places and, and broadcast from places that we never could before. And when we would go out of town, 
we would call whoever the CONUS affiliate was in that town and say, hey, can we use our truck rather than drive ours all the way out to Los Angeles? And so the, the CONUS affiliate out there is, um, is a major independent station in Los Angeles, KTLA uh, Channel 5. And so we had made arrangements with KTLA to, this was going to be the way for me to get our material up on the bird and back down so people in Kansas City could see it. So the Rodney King trial was happening. They were knee deep in coverage. And so as I'm getting on a plane in Kansas City, we know the verdict has happened. And our last conversation with the people at Channel 5 in Los Angeles was, we'll do all we can to help you, but the verdict has just happened and we don't know what's going to happen tonight in our city. So if you want to go ahead and take a chance, by all means. And so we sort of rolled the dice and said, okay, we're going out. So I get on a plane knowing that the verdict has happened. And so three hours later, um, the plane I'm on, we're on, we're on final into LAX. And I look out the window and I see probably 10 really good sized fires burning. And it was at that moment I knew it's on. So I get off the plane. I, I quickly find a phone at LAX and call back to my desk in Kansas City, where the local time is somewhere after midnight. And I say, hey, I don't know what you guys are seeing back there, but there's a hell of a riot going on here. And they said, yeah, we know. Um, why don't you for now find your hotel and let's talk really early first thing in the morning. And so we did. I was working with a freelance photographer in Los Angeles who I, I hadn't picked up yet, but was going to first thing in the morning. And so long story short, make contact with the freelance photographer, talk to my people. Suddenly we know we have a much better idea um, of what is going on in Los Angeles. And so we ended up spending a little bit of time going to Douglas Aircraft and trying to cover that part of the story. But we didn't spend a lot of time there. And so we went off and covered the riot. And this, is, this will sound funny to say, but it's the middle of the day in South Central Los Angeles on April 30th, 1992. And I'm with a freelance photographer who thankfully has a very good sense of, of Los Angeles and what it's all about and, and places to go and places to stay away from. Uh, he had been a, a veteran uh, photographer in that market for, for many, many years. And so I, I took advantage of, of that experience. But we, we kind of find ourselves in the middle of it. Uh, and, and picture for a moment Picture for a moment a street with all kinds of small businesses on either side of it, okay? And people are just literally walking in and out of these businesses, whether it's a barber shop, whether it's something akin to like a Dollar General today, something like a convenience store that what we would find today, any kind of store that you can imagine, people were walking in and out of. And they would walk in with nothing and walk out with as much as they could carry. And there weren't a lot of police officers around to put a stop to that because of the size of 
Los Angeles that was kind of up for grabs at that time. The National Guard had been called out, but there were problems getting them mobilized because they didn't have the right equipment and they ended up having to go to another state. And it just took a long time for the National Guard to get on the ground in, in South Central Los Angeles. And it wasn't until the National Guard got there and they were able to maintain that what was roughly about a 20, 25 square block perimeter. Once they were able to establish that, then the LAPD could go in and, and clean things up. But there were just far too many people taking advantage of this situation than there were cops. And so we're looking at all of, we're, we're looking at a part of a big city that is, again, up for grabs. And we're looking, we're looking for a safe place to record some really dangerous stuff. And, and there were all kinds of people had all kinds of weapons. Um, we had a couple of those weapons pointed at us at, at a couple of moments. What do you do in that situation when somebody's pointing a gun at you? You back off, you put your hands up and say, okay, we're, we're out. And that's kind of what we did. How scared were you? It's the only time in my, in my, there are two times in my professional career that I worried about my safety. And that was one of them. What was the other? I was a radio reporter in the Quad Cities. It was my first job. It was late at night. There was a big UAW strike at a um, farm implement plant. And I happened to come across somebody who I think had probably had way, way, way too much to drink and um, was certainly angry about the situation and where the contract talks were going and probably about his own economic future, um, who pulled a knife on me. Um, but that was probably the only other time. But L.A. was was just a whole different deal. And so, um, you know, we, we um, it was about a 36-hour day, as I recall, uh, the L.A. riot. And, um, and to this day, uh, words matter to me, as you know. I have been, I think, exceedingly careful in using the word riot to describe civil unrest. I didn't use the word riot when describing Ferguson, though there are probably people who would argue that what happened there certainly rises to that level. Um, I certainly didn't use the riot, the word riot in describing what was happening here in Kansas City just a few weeks ago. I, I don't think it was anywhere close. To me, my bar between what's a riot and what's not, if it doesn't look like what I saw in L.A. in, 90, in 92, it, it, just, it just doesn't rise to that level for me. Um, but it was a... It, it, I've never seen anything like it. I hope to God I never see anything like it. Um, it has taken that community decades to try to recover from it socially economically and and here we are in 2020 still talking about the same issues that's a really sad thing to say did you think we would be did you think that would start the healing process back in 1992 because i i really don't feel like it has i mean and i'm with you it's 2020 we shouldn't be having conversations because we shouldn't have discrimination in this country right now i, I thought I thought, I thought the, the, the L.A. riot, the South Central riot in 92, was a bottom. 
then again, you know, the Watts riots in the 60s were probably seen as a bottom. The riots that followed the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King in 68 were probably seen as a bottom. You know, we've been here before. And the fact that we're still here in 2020 is a tragedy on so many levels. And you, you, I, I guess I'm, I'm one of those people who, like you, I, I just would have thought we would have been farther down the road than we are. And, and that's really sad. Do you think this is the bottom and now we start going up? Like, do you think this is the moment in time where everybody finally realizes this has been pretty messed up? We've been doing it wrong and we write ourselves and we write the situation? This does feel different. Uh, this feels different than 68. This feels different than 92. This does feel different. And I, I don't know that I can put my finger on why, but it does. It gives me hope that somehow, some way, there's going to be real change on a lot of levels. Um, things that should have happened a long time ago. We'll see. Uh, we've all been down this road before, and we've all seen what's happened and have been disappointed. But there's, with so much at stake, you, my God, you got to keep trying. Mm -hmm. um, but I, again, I, I, I do, I, there's, and maybe it's because we're in Kansas City and we're not in Minneapolis or we're not in Atlanta or we're not in some of the other cities where there have been far greater problems. Um, I don't know. That's a really good question. I'm when, keeping my fingers. I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Let's put it that way. When we're sitting here and and you're covering these stories and like when you're covering, I'll just say 2020, right? When you're covering 2020 and you're a news guy, do you ever look in the mirror and go, "Man, I should have stayed in sports and 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 should have followed that dream"? <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Uh, for those who don't know, I. Um, it, it all started for me at a thousand watt radio station in Moline, Illinois. How many times have you heard that? Uh, I was still a senior in high school when I got my job, uh, first job reading weekend news on a on that radio station. But that radio station had um, they had just won a national headliners award. It was a six person full time newsroom in a city of forty five thousand people in a metropolitan area of about three hundred fifty thousand people. So that's that's pretty tough to find one of those today. But they had just won a National Headliners Award, and, and again, they were really good people, and, and this will sound familiar. Once again, I walk into a room with some seasoned professionals. I knew this is what, I always knew this is what I wanted to do. And I thought, if I just kept my mouth shut and watched how these people work, I might, I might learn something. Um, for those who don't know, my father was a television anchor up in the Quad Cities for 35 years, and so um, growing up kind of in the business and being around newsrooms, Newsrooms were never places that were intimidating to me and were always places that I treated with respect. But again, I'm, I'm walking into a room with people who know what they're doing and I want to be like them. And so the best way to get from point A to point B at a moment like this is shut up and watch how they work and hopefully you learn something. Mm -hmm. And did you learn something? News was the right route. Sports is not the way to go. <laughs> yeah, I, I, no regrets there, though sports was, I had, I did a lot of sports uh, at that radio station, and um, 
in fact, there was a there was one year as it took me five and a half years to get out of college, and one of the reasons why is there was one year that was kind of thrown away, but it was a wonderful experience. Um, the radio station that I worked at had just won a contract to broadcast University of Iowa basketball home and away, and there were five stations originating Iowa basketball at the time. We happened to be one of them. It's far different now, but um, the play-by-play guy uh, at the time. Uh, is the longtime uh, play-by-play voice of the Arizona Diamondbacks on radio, Greg Schulte. And so Greg and I did Iowa basketball home and away. And your typical Big, tri- de- your typical Big Ten road trip in the 1979-80 season involved Thursday-Saturday games. So you're leaving town Wednesday, and you're not getting back until either late Saturday night or early Sunday morning. So there were an awful lot of classes I missed. But Greg obviously did play-by-play. I did pregame, halftime, and post. And it was so much fun. Lute Olson was the head coach of the Hawkeyes at the time. They went to the Final Four. It was Ronnie Lester's team. It was so much fun. And Iowa City was uh, is about an hour's drive from the Quad City, so real close. I had a ball. I'm, I'm not going to – I'm not kidding. It was, it was more fun – it sure be doing high school basketball and football games. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Okay? Much, um, much nicer digs, much nicer surroundings. In, in many respects, it was kind of the big time, at least the way I saw it at that time. It was so much fun. But uh, as we got later, deeper into that season, I ended up having to leave that broadcast team because the station was running into some financial problems. This was a blessing, believe me. Um, because I was missing so much school and I was working at the radio station but going to college at the time, it was always my top priority to get a degree. And I knew that the road that I was on, missing all of this class and all of this time and all of this study time, I knew it wasn't going to happen. And so the fact that it ended the way it did was a real blessing for me because I got kind of recentered and, and back on the path that I, was, I always wanted to be on originally anyway. And, and I think, you know, sports to me, and, and, and we're in this time now of what's a, a necessary business and all this kind of stuff. And for me, sports is a necessary business because of the way it, it, it mentally, it's a mentally cleansing type of deal. And I think everybody needs to focus on their mental health now more so maybe than, than ever. But when a team wins, the kind of effect that it has on a community is something like, We've never seen before. I mean, I go back to 14 and 15 with the Royals and, and not just them winning a championship. I think we changed as a city when the Royals won. We grew up, we became better. We believed in ourselves. Our mental health got better. I think we, I think we advanced as a town when the Royals won, then capped that off with the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl. And I don't think we've been able to really take advantage of that because of the quarantine and the pandemic. But I think sports has such an effect on the men- mental state of a town. When your team is doing well, man, everybody's feeling good. Listen, I'll go back, I'll go back to the World Series championship of 1985 the memory and the feeling of that championship lasted in this city probably far longer than it should have Mm -hmm. and i think the memories of 85 really got us through as a as a sports town some really really awful years of baseball as you well know (laughs) i mean let's let's face it the royals there were a lot of years where the royals were just they just weren't very good. Right. And, and interest in the team was, was not 
as high as it is. But sports, as you well know, Bob, I mean, it has this innate ability when things are going right and your team is winning, it makes an entire city feel better about themselves. And I think that's especially important in Kansas City's case because, and other people have said this, and I've, I've said this for years, and I, for whatever reason, um, I think Kansas City has an odd, almost inferiority complex about itself. That while we love living here, we on some level just don't quite feel like we rise to the level of, say, a Minneapolis or a Denver or even St. Louis, which I think are, uh, it's an incorrect view, but I think a lot of us have it. And, and again, I'm, I'm not, maybe it's because it's the Midwest and Kansas Cityans, I think, like they do probably in a lot of other communities, this has a very, while it's a big city, but it has a small town feel to it. Maybe that's part of it. I don't know. But when your team wins a championship, man, you just, you just feel like you're on top of the world and you feel um, we now have something that New York doesn't have or Chicago doesn't have or St. Louis doesn't have as, as we all felt in, in 85. And uh, and sports has that way. It just does. And we're never going to forget 85. We're never going to forget 2014 and 2015. And we're sure as hell never going to forget the Super Bowl championship in, in Miami. And you're absolutely right. The pandemic has robbed us of that sort of really good feeling that should, that, that should have come with a with a with a moment like that and it's 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 too bad on the other hand i can't wait for football to start again because if, if anybody's had a better off season than the kansas city chiefs show right me. show me they've signed mahomes they've signed chris jones you know the cap is under control they have all these starters coming back hashtag run it back i'm 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 on board i am i am totally on board with this team is there anything that you can even think is a close second when it comes to uniting people other than sports? Maybe I think of a tragedy like 9-11. Yeah. Um, that certainly reunited us in ways that we never imagined. Um, but probably not. No, yeah, I, I remember. I, I remember being at the. Um, just speaking of nine eleven, I don't know why I'm thinking of it. It's just popped in my head. The um, the first NFL game, one of the first NFL games that followed nine eleven was at Arrowhead. Best sporting event I've ever been to. When the when the when the the Giants came to town, and I um, we were um, we were season ticket holders at the time, and we weren't going to miss that game. And the feeling in the stands. Yeah, we wanted the Chiefs to win that day, but if they hadn't, it would have been okay. Um, but I think that was a Sunday that it it gave Kansas Cityans a chance to reach out to people in New York and say, we love you, we care, we're all on the same team. And there, are, there haven't been a lot of moments like that 
where so many people come together and, and are all on the same page. And um, but but for Kansas City, that was a chance to do that and to to send that message, not just to Kansas City, but to the rest of the country, that we are all one. Um, I don't know that we've ever had another moment like that since. No. It um, it was sure pretty cool at the time. It really was. I remember my dad and his friends flew in from New Jersey for that game. They were coming out anyway. It just happened to be that game after 9-11. And everybody in the parking lot coming up to him in his Giants jersey hugging him. And, you know, we're here with you. Like, it, it was really a special moment that, you know, it, I get goosebumps talking about it because it was just it, like there's not much more you can say that it was a special moment. And if you were there, you remember that day vividly, you know. We'll never forget it. Yep. No. All right. So one of the rules in journalism is, you know, report the story, don't be the story. But you actually became the story in 2003 with the tornadoes up north. Your house, boom, destroyed. What was what was that like for you? Yeah, I. I'm still amazed that we walked away from an F4 tornado. Because at the time, an F on the Fujita scale at the time, an F4 was was a storm that packed winds of between 205 and 250 miles an hour. You just don't get a chance to walk away from an F4. I'm sorry, you just don't. And so while that day I lost a house and almost a family, we never had to deal with a funeral. And if you put it in that context, the rest of the stuff is really pretty insignificant. But that was a, a time where we had 12 people in our house when it hit. And this is up in the, uh, the newer part, what was then the newer part of the Carriage Hill Estates area in, in Kansas City North. And I was with my then father-in-law, whose house was about three blocks away on the Gladstone side of Carriage Hill Estates. And we were, it was a birthday party for him and, and me. And we had, we had these inch thick butterfly pork chops stacked mm. on a plate ready to go on the grill. But we were short on steak knives, and so he and I went to his house to go get steak knives. And the weather was coming, straight line winds, rain, like crazy. And I'm in my SUV in, the, in his driveway. He's trying to lock his front door. We have the steak knives. And I will never forget, for as long as I live, Looking to my right, which was west on what is Northeast 63rd Street on the Gladstone side. And at the end of the street, there was this enormous gray charcoal wall. And, and our tornado, it wasn't this sort of well-defined funnel that you see on TV. The base of this thing was enormous. And I saw this wall. And I... It's, it's a feeling that is hard to describe, but it just, at that moment, I said to myself, oh my God, it's here. And we had been watching the tornado's progress all day long on TV, Johnny Rollins up in News Chapter 9, but you never think it's going to happen to you. You never think it's going to happen to you. And we never thought it was going to happen to us. So I looked at, uh, at Daryl, he looked at me, and he went from trying to lock his front door to quickly unlocking it, and we went down into his basement, and moments, moments after that, the tornado hit. His house took a hit, um, a pretty good one, 
but it was still standing. The, the tornado hitting that area, and I've gone back and forth in my head about the length of time, noise like you, you can't believe. There were all kinds of things hitting the house, all kinds of trees and you name it. It probably lasted a good 30 seconds. And so the storm passes, we come up, take a look outside, and there's some, there's, there's damage to be seen. There's windows out and garage doors down and mature trees everywhere in the street. The, that part of the neighborhood took a hit, but all in all, not bad. I've seen worse. I've covered worse. Never mind the fact that you go a half block in any direction and it's devastation, but I couldn't see that at that moment. So I get on my cell phone and I'm trying to call home and I, I get one of those, those rapid, one of those things. And I'm thinking, well, the cell towers are down. My view of the tornado at that moment is, while it's, it's not good, but I've seen worse. And everybody's coming up from their basements. And so it looks as if everybody survives. Uh, it took probably 10, 15 minutes before one of the people at our party comes running up the street. And don't forget, there are mature trees in the street, so it's, we can't go anywhere. One of the people at our party comes running up to us all out of breath, and this is all he says. Everybody's okay, but your house is gone. And so at that moment, I start running. And so I run up Northeast 63rd Street, hang a left, then a right, and then up the hill. And then it dawns on me with just what has happened. When I got to the end of Northeast 63rd Street, to the newer part of Carriage Hill Estates at the time, then it hit me. Then it was like, oh, my God, this, this was the real deal. And so I had, the, uh, I had the benefit of knowing that everybody at our house was okay, kids, wife in-laws, sisters-in-laws, significant others. Uh, but my wife at the time, uh, she has a, a far different take on that moment because she was convinced that her husband and her father might well be gone. So I get to the house and we, we make connections and we make sure that everybody's okay. We confirm that. And then I and another guy start going kind of house to house down the street just to see. Um, well, I wasn't sure what we were, we were going to see and was fearing the worst. For instance, the house across the street from ours was literally blown off its foundation. All that, all that remained was this concrete slab that a house moments earlier stood. So we went from house to house just to try and find anybody. and. As I say, the fact that, that no one in our neighborhood lost their lives at a moment like that, I just think is crazy, absolutely crazy. But it happened, and it changed me in ways that I uh, would never have imagined at the time. Um, the one thing that I wish someone would have told me that night, and, and going through one of these things, you have a million and one things going on in your head. You are thankful for the fact that you're there. You're thankful for the fact that your family is alive. You're thankful for the fact that your, your friends are all okay, your neighbors. But then comes this moment of, well, where do we go from here? We had insurance. 
but I couldn't tell you at that time what was in the policy or how the process worked, or I had no clue. And I'll never forget one of the, one of the, one of the few things worthwhile things that I did that that moment was so I I tried to call my insurance agent and I knew he had other clients in our neighborhood and this is on a Sunday late in the day and I'm thinking well you know Carlos has other clients he's maybe he's gone into the office so I call the office nobody there I get the voicemail and the 1-800 number for our insurance company so I call the 1-800 number for the insurance company and a nice person takes answers the phone and says hello how can i help you and at that moment i didn't even know what to say i just kind of blurted out and said we just had a tornado and the person who took the call was very nice she said is is everybody okay and i said yeah we're all here everybody everybody's fine and then her next question was what's your policy number <laughs> which i didn't have an answer for you know and so i wasn't of, of much help to her at that moment and then hung up uh, 20 minutes later, an adjuster called and said, listen, we know what's happened. We're on it. We're pulling adjusters from all over the Midwest. And I remember asking him, what do I do now? And he's, all he said was, just take care of your family. And I said, okay, I, I think I can do that. But, um, but the one thing that I wish someone would have told me that night, with a million and one things going on in your head and none of them are good, I wish someone had put their arm around me and said, it's gonna be okay. It's not gonna to be tomorrow, it's not gonna be next week, it's not gonna be a month from now, but it's going to be okay. And in the tornadoes that I have covered since ours, um, I was in Joplin that night, um, I was in Jefferson City last year, I've, I've covered three or four. Joplin was by far the biggest. The people who have been nice enough to share their stories with us, I've always taken a moment afterwards and put my arm around him and say, you're going to be okay. Um, I, I know what you're going through and, you know, it's going to be okay. Uh, you need to do some things first, like catch your breath, grab a piece of paper and a pencil and figure out, okay, we need to do this tomorrow. We need to do this the next day. We need to do this the day after that whether it's finding a place to live or shopping for clothes or trying to figure out where you can store stuff, how you're going to move it, whatever. It, it, the list is long, but you need a plan. And, and the only way you're going to do that is if you, you need to stop the world for a minute and sit down and say, okay, what's our next move? which is a really hard thing to do at a, at a time like this when you pretty much lost. We didn't lose everything, but it was pretty close. And, um, um, you know, for somebody who has been in daily journalism for as long as I've been in, even at that time, and I've covered, I've, I've covered many tornadoes before, um, but until it happens to you, you don't have a clue. <laughs> yeah. I, am, I am here to tell you, I didn't have a clue. Um, but, um, but I think it's, it's, it is certainly, um, it's helped my reporting when it comes to an event like this, having been through it. And, um, so it happened May 4th, 2003, we were back in what was our rebuilt house the, uh, week before Thanksgiving. 
And I'm going to tell you something, that Christmas was the best ever because it, it, it was a, um, it was an important milestone. Um, we had a huge party in our neighborhood the year after the, the one year anniversary of our tornado and we shut down the street and we cooked steaks. And we, uh, it was just, it was one of the best parties I've ever been to because it was for a lot of us, the finish line. We, we'd finally made it. We'd finally gotten to um, something really, really close to what we had before. And at a moment when we never thought that might be possible, but we'd, we'd made it. Yeah. And, um, like I said, it was the best party ever. So was the best moment of your career interrupting Bill Clinton? Was it being on Oprah? Was it interviewing Obama? Was it having a beer dumped on your head at a bar on St. Patrick's Day? Like, like where, where do you rank all those? They were all moments. You know, they were all moments. Um, the, uh, which one do you want to hear first? I, I love hear- the Bill Clinton story. I think that one to me. And then I want to hear the St. Patty's Day beer story because I've never heard you get dumped on. Yeah, I, yeah, I was at a bar in... Um, we, you know, and that part of this is our fault because you never want to put a live camera in a bar on the night of St. Patrick. What the hell were we? Um, but um, it was a place in, in Johnson County, and I, I, I even I've tried to put that moment out of my mind. Uh, but yeah, it was a ten o'clock live shot, and somebody dumped a beer on my head, and I just, just carried on. <laughs> That's what to do. I mean, it's, right? It's not like you could. It's not like you could stop the you it, it, you couldn't stop a moment in live television and you know go after this guy, right? Um, so, but um, the uh, the President Clinton story. Um, long story short, he came to Kansas City to address the Southern Governors Association at was that what was then the Ritz Carlton, which is now the Intercontinental on the Plaza, in the ballroom downstairs, which is not a terribly big ballroom by Kansas City hotel ballroom standards, uh, but a nice place, no doubt. And so it was a noon speech, and our plan was we were going to carry a little bit of the president's address right off the top at noon, and then we were going to get back to regular programming because at the time ABC ran a soap opera called All My Children, which was extremely popular, especially in this market. And if you're going to interrupt All My Children, it, it better be for a better reason than a presidential address in your city. And so... Um, so anyway, I had my back to the president, and to this day, I still felt like I was talking in such a hushed tone that I wasn't going to interrupt anyone, including the president of the United States. But apparently, I was a little loud, or louder than I should have been. I have my back to the president. I have a thing in my ear. I'm focused on what I'm trying to do. And, uh, and so as I'm talking to our audience on Channel 9, live at 12 noon, the president of the United States interrupts, stops his speech, points to the back of the room at me and says, does that guy back there want to give a speech? And the whole room just lit up, just laughter like you couldn't believe. And, and the president Clinton, to his credit, seizing the moment, we can't both talk at the same time. So he got another laugh. And so uh, I was done. I didn't know what had happened. I didn't know what had happened until the end of the speech when I was surrounded by three Secret Service agents wanting to look at my credentials. They didn't tell me what had happened. They just wanted to know who I was. And so at that moment, I'm thinking, okay, something's happened here. Still didn't know. 
And then moments later was surrounded by four or five members of the White House press corps. And they're all asking questions about this interruption in the speech. And it was at that moment I realized, oh, geez, that was me. And I remember turning to my right and Steve Kraske, who was uh, a longtime uh, political reporter, great guy from the Kansas City Star, one of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. And I remember, I remember asking Steve, who doesn't have a bad word to say about anybody. And I remember asking Steve, was I that loud? And Steve said, eh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so at that moment, I, uh, I knew I had to make an apology. And I was anchoring our five o'clock broadcast at the time. And so I called into the newsroom and, and they were watching the speech on a clean feed, meaning that all they saw was the president. They didn't see anything else in the room. One camera on the president, that's all they saw. And so I remember telling my producer, hey, that moment where the president was interrupted in his speech, she says, yeah, and I said, that was me. And she said, no. And I said, yeah. And I said, do me a favor, give me, give me like 90 seconds at the end of the five o'clock and I'll, I'll issue an apology. Um, I just felt like it was something that, A, I needed to kind of try and get out in front of. Social media hadn't happened. God forbid, if that, if that same thing had happened during social media, in the time of social media, it would, have been, it, would have been, it would have been difficult. But there was no social media at the time, but the, but the word was spreading around town. And so I, I just, my, my first instinct was, we need to get out in front of this. We need, to, we need to apologize and move on. So I wrote the apology. I walked it into my news director, who at the time was a guy named Brian Bracco, wonderful man. And you forgot Brian, legendary Brian Bracco. Met the legendary Brian Bracco, who was uh, one of the, the top local news executives in the country um, before his retirement a few years ago after uh, president general manager over at KSHB. So I walked, I wrote the apology, walked it into Brian. He, he still wasn't aware of what had happened. So I told him and he said, okay. And I said, I want to make, I want to make this apology. And he said, fine. I said, I've written it. Take a look. He said, okay, this looks good. Fine. Everything's fine. So we get to five o'clock. I read the apology. Everything's fine. Come out of the studio into the newsroom. Brian says, Hey, can we do that apology again at six? <laughs> we had been, we had gotten our share of, of nasty phone calls, as it turns out, throughout the afternoon. I wasn't aware of it at the time, but we had, again, the word was getting around town. People took it as disrespectful, and uh, they wanted to make sure that we heard what they had to say about it. So we went ahead, and we did the apology again at 6 o'clock, and then Good Morning America called. And there were a couple of other shows that called, and they wanted me to come on the air and talk about that moment. And I said to my boss, do I have to do this? And Brian said, no, not, not it's, he says, it's, it's up to you. He said, I wouldn't do it if I were you, but that's up to you. And so I politely said, no, even to GMA, same network. And then Oprah called, the Oprah show called. It wasn't Oprah, but it was the show. And at the time the Oprah Winfrey show was at four o'clock and Stations like ours um, paid her a lot of money to what was for a, an extremely successful show to build a, a large lead-in for for our 
early local news, which was a newscast that I anchored. And so the Oprah, the Oprah Winfrey show calls and said, Hey, can you, can you come out to, uh, can you come out to Chicago and talk about this moment? And, um, that was a hard one to say no to because of the fact of what I just explained. So I went, uh, went out to Chicago, did the Oprah show. Actually, the, um, it was the, um, it was the second time I had been on Oprah. The first time was for, uh, it was Kelly Eckerman, who I was anchoring the five o'clock with at the time. Um, we were, we were in Chicago on the Oprah show on the day of the Oklahoma city bombing. We were there to do another show, but then Oklahoma city happened. And, um, the Oprah Winfrey show at the time was out of Chicago and they did, they would, they would do two shows. The show that they, that they did at nine o'clock in the morning during the week was seen live in Chicago on, on WLS TV channel seven up there. But then they would do another show that would start at about noon, which was the show that they, um, there was much more production involved and uh, they were both shows that got sent out to the rest of the country. But so we, uh, Kelly and I, uh, we, we go to Chicago to do a, to do a, a show on, um, Oprah wanted to do the show on organizing. Um, and I, if you looked in our newsroom, my desk was clean and, and Kelly's was a mess. And so she was going to bring in this, um, this organizing expert to try and straighten us out. Okay. And then, you know, then Oklahoma City happened. Hang on just a sec. <laughs> We're recording something here. <laughs> you can tell I'm home, can't you? <laughs> yeah. It's normal now, though, Chris. Nobody cares. <laughs> so anyway, so we go to Chicago, and then... Uh, uh, so we're, we're, we're sitting in, in the studio, uh, it's before the nine o'clock show, which again was seen live in Chicago, but sent out to the rest of the country. And Oprah starts the show by saying, Hey, Oklahoma city's happened. We need to talk about Oklahoma city. And so Kelly and I are sitting in the green room thinking there's no way, there's no way that they're, they're going to try and do this show on, you know, organizing your closet or your desk or whatever, when, you know, this Oklahoma city's happened. So we're sitting in the green room at about 40 minutes later, Oprah says, okay, well, we've talked about Oklahoma City. We're going to try and do the show that we originally had planned. And so suddenly a producer comes running in to Kelly and I and says, okay, let's go. So um, they, we wind through this hallway and we get out to the studio. And the Oprah show at the time, uh, there were an awful lot of guests who were like in the front row. And I just kind of instinctively thought, well, we're, we're, I'm probably I'm going to be in that front row. I'm going to be in the, in the audience, okay? And I'm starting to walk this way, and the producer says, no, 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 you're on home base. That's what they called it, home base. So, um, so we did the show, and, and it was fine. Um, and then, you know, I interrupt the president, and I come back to, for another shot on Oprah. It was me and a, about four or five other local television reporters who had uh, embarrassing moments in their careers. And uh, uh, mine was certainly one of them. And I'll never forget, um, so, and this was one of those shows that they taped. It wasn't seen live in Chicago. And I'll never forget, Oprah said, uh, in introducing me, uh, Chris Katz from KNBC TV in Kansas. That's like, so, and I'm, I'm like, oh, I hate it when they do that, you know? I hate it when they do that. Mm-hmm. And so we get into a break, and I whispered into Oprah's ear. I said, listen. Um, your introduction 
um, it's it's KNBC TV in Kansas City, not Kansas. And she kind of paused and whispered, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. And so I went to one of the producers. I said, can we do this again? I said, it's okay. We'll, we'll fix it and post up. <laughs> so, oh, okay, well. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so I called Oprah on uh, mispronouncing Kansas City. Um, She's done okay since then, though. She's been all right. Yeah, I think so. So, so what's next now for you? I mean, you've, you've been on Oprah. You've interviewed presidents. You've won Emmy Awards. You, I mean, World Series, Super Bowls. What's next? I want to do another Super Bowl. I want to do another Super Bowl. Um, I was in Miami for this one. Um, Laura Moritz was down earlier in the week. I didn't get there until uh, Friday. Um, but um, I want to do another Super Bowl. Um, I think we should make plans for Tampa in uh, February of, of next year. Um, and I, I, I think this team is set up for a long and glorious run. And, um, you know, and let's hopefully, when we get to the other side of this pandemic, which we will, um, hopefully we'll have the kind of extended celebration that we were all robbed of this year. Mm-hmm. That would be cool. I'd like to see that. I really would. What an amazing look back at the career of one of the greatest anchormen to have ever called Kansas City home. Chris Ketz has truly seen it all right here in our town, and there's no stopping him. 37 years in the books, maybe another 37 to go. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.